0: Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the Cyber Theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity.
1: Good day, everyone. This is Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. And today's episode is going to explore the current state of cybersecurity readiness in the wake of the colonial pipeline attack, the Chinese threat and the societal implications of social media narcissism. Joining me today is Elizabeth Braugh, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a columnist at the Foreign Policy magazine. She frequently writes op-eds for the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and Politico. Elizabeth led the Royal United Services Institute's Modern Deterrence Project, which focuses on how governments, business, and civil society can work together to strengthen our defense against existing and emerging threats. And boy, could we use some more of that right now. She presently serves as a commissioner on the UK's National Preparedness Commission, from which she has broad visibility into cyber threats and consequences. So welcome, Elizabeth. I'm glad you could join me today.
0: Thank you for the invitation. Happy to join you.
1: Great. Let's talk cybersecurity. You likely have some observations and reaction to the Colonial Pipeline attack back on May 7th. Does that event spotlight a a lack of preparedness in our critical infrastructure? And what in your estimation can and should we do about it?
0: Well, it sure highlights vulnerabilities. And the the thing is that that we have uh, everybody's talking about, you know, how can we how can we strengthen the technical aspects of, of cybersecurity, meaning how can how can the Uh, The managers at the respective company do an even better job because we have to remember uh, it only takes one successful attack for us all to focus on on what's wrong with that company. But we don't we don't uh, know and we don't remember the 99 unsuccessful attacks. So maybe 999 unsuccessful attacks it takes for every one attack to to be successful. So that's one aspect. How can we strengthen the technical resilience of of those networks at any given company? What is even more important, and what we haven't discussed at all so far in most of our Western societies, is um, the societal resilience. So how do we, as ordinary citizens, respond when a network is taken down or when a company's services are taken down? And we have to remember that with Colonial Pipeline, the shortages resulting from that uh, suspension of, of services, as, as it were, when Colonial Pipeline shut down the pipeline, uh, that was just one aspect when, when the shortages really took off and when people started noticing and that there was no gas at the gas station was when others started stockpiling. And so if, if people just hadn't been stockpiling, the, the damage would have been much less. But this one cyber attack or a ransomware attack specifically, it caused people to panic, and that made the situation much worse.
1: Yeah, of course, and I think we still have gas lines, and it's a weekend a couple of days later. You just asked a sort of average person on the street what what happened there and, and uh, how they feel about our ability to defend against these now uh, recognized to be nation state attacks. What what do you think folks would say?
0: Well, first of all, they, they would have no idea what you were talking about because they are so used to everything working perfectly. And, and um, there's something I call the convenience trap, which is that the more convenient our societies become, the more spoiled we are in a sense. But the more uh, convenient society becomes, the more vulnerable it becomes as well, because there are many more aspects that an adversary or any group for that matter can can choose to target. And there's just no way we can, I say we, but the the cybersecurity experts, both within the private sector and the government, there's no way they can protect and defend us against every single attack. So there will be disruptions, and uh, it, it will cause the same situation as we had with Colonial Pipeline. So the, the problem is that, that people don't know ab- about these threats, because obviously no company wants to say, well, it's <laughs> great, we, uh, we protect our company. Network against thousands of attack attacks every single day. That's fantastic. They don't say that because obviously then people would panic and 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 uh, suspect that that there could be a successful attack at some point in the near future. So it's better not to mention it at all. But it would be better if if this were part of the public discourse if people did know that there is the risk of attacks, because then they would also know what to do. And and so, for example, that's what earthquake zones do. I, used to, I lived in San Francisco for five years. In San Francisco, everyone is told by the city government on countless public awareness campaigns that this is what you need to do to prepare for an earthquake, this is what you need to do during the earthquake, and this is what you need to do uh, after the earthquake. And the the campaign is called SF-72, meaning you are on your own for 72 hours. The government can't help you because it will, be he, uh, it will be helping those who really need help. So I think something like that would be possible for other sorts of contingencies as well, uh, whether they are caused by matter nature or a hostile state or or some sort of criminal group. But at the moment, that doesn't exist. So people wouldn't have the foggiest idea. Most people wouldn't have the foggiest idea of what you were talking about. If you brought up uh, nation-state actors bringing down their the
1: services they rely on every single day. Yeah, sure and it feels like this one is a bit of a rubicon event in that it was I believe the first cyber physical attack that we've experienced and um, it certainly changed the sort of average person on the streets outlook about what a what a cyber threat is now. Doesn't mean they understand it any better than they did before, but we have a communications challenge in front of us in addition to a national defense challenge.
0: And if I may add, Steve, it may not have been a bad thing. I I hate to say this because obviously it was, it it has, and still is terribly inconvenient for many, many, many people, but this attack may not have been a bad thing because as you said, it was a bit, or it is a bit of of a a rubicon and people realize that, uh, that even in the U.S. they are vulnerable to, threats and adversaries they, they can't see, and it ha- will have an immediate impact on their lives, which is something that makes it so different from you know the, the national security threats of, of, of the past, including the Cold War, when the U.S. was always at a safe distance from the ills that could befall other countries. The U.S. was always protected by geography, no more.
1: Yes, and mutual uh, destruction as well. Um Along those lines, you've written about the dual challenges arising from so much of the world's component resources dependent upon China, putting countries like America in a difficult situation. You know, we're feeding China's expanding economy on the one hand, and yet this, we also find it difficult to wean ourselves off of a cheap supply of parts and components. Your piece about the Uyghurs' uh, forced labor in the production of solar panels is poignant in that China has managed to corral 95% of the photovoltaic cell market, I believe, while continuing to violate civil rights like that. leaves us stuck with the choice between dirty energy and cheap labor. Give our listeners a bit of the history of the solar industry as an example.
0: Yes, the history of the solar industry really is the history of globalization in the past couple of decades or three decades. So we should remember that there was Jimmy Carter who put solar power on people's radar, as it were, when he installed solar panels on the roof of the White House. And he was a pioneer, as it were, because it was just not very common then or even, even less known about by the wider public. But in this century the usage of solar panels has grown quite a bit, or solar energy, I should say, has grown quite a bit. And it used to be that, that Germany was the leading country, leading manufacturer of solar panels. But then globalization, as is often the case, as is usually the case, moves along the streams of cost. So it turned out that it was cheaper to make components in China, and especially what's really important here are the photovoltaic cells, which are really sort of the engine of solar panels. So China, Chinese companies were able to, to make that more cheaply than German companies. And specifically, uh, Xinjiang region was able to do it more cheaply. They had access to cheaper labor. They had access to resources. And, and so it was, as has been the case in so many other sectors the German solar panel industry virtually uh, didn't go out of business, but it shrank enormously from what it had been, whereas China grew exponentially, or the Chinese solar panel industry grew exponentially. And uh, today, we are dependent on those solar panels from China. Lo and behold, We weren't paying much attention as this was happening, and so we are dependent on solar panels from China, from Xinjiang region, but that also includes the taint on forced labor. And yes, not every solar panel or photovoltaic manufacturer uses forced labor, but it's almost impossible to document the supply chain Within China, and of course, that's that's what China wants. They don't want us to be able to document. So we have to assume that there is forced labor in our solar panel uh, solar panels, and that puts us in a really really tricky situation. Because when we want to to switch to renewable, which is the case now and has been the case for for, for a number of years, but especially now and and going forward, uh, we, what are we going to put there? We have to either try to quickly. Uh, incentivize companies in the West to, to start making solar panels again. Or otherwise, we have to have a uh, put up our solar panels with the guilty conscience of knowing that they are likely to involve uh, forced labor.
1: Yeah, and I, I see clients of ours now struggling to deliver against demand because of serious pipeline disruptions in their supply chain for electronic components during the pandemic. And If China continues to have success with their Belt and Road Initiative, how big a global threat do they become over the next five years?
0: Yeah, this is another really tricky issue. So the fundamental issue we are facing is that globalization isn't working. Uh, Globalization is supposed to move, as as I mentioned earlier, with the cost. So uh, whichever country whichever region or whichever company is able to do things for the lowest price with the best outcome at that price will get the business. And so we were all thinking in the lines of, 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 of Davos world where that happens and, and borders become almost irrelevant and you can you can trade back and forth across borders and it's, it's all pretty seamless. So what do you do if one country in particular decides to exploit that dependence of other countries on its suppliers and its resources. And that's what's happening at the moment. So we saw, for example, with Japan a number of years ago, I think it was 10 years ago, when China got annoyed that Japan had arrested a a Chinese fishing captain, they just suspended exports of, uh, they meaning uh, the Chinese government, suspended Chinese companies' exports of rare earth minerals to Japan. But rare earth minerals are are vital to production of most high-end gadgets. So if you don't get your high-end or your your rare earth minerals, you can't produce those gadgets. And China has threatened to do the same thing again, and they can threaten the same thing for a number of, not just products, but components. And I think components are the important thing here, because it doesn't matter if you have the, the 4,999 other parts in your product, if you don't have that part that you are missing. So it's, it gives enormous power to, to a country that is willing to use this really dirty tool. And that's what we are facing, not just as countries, but as companies as well.
1: Yeah, certainly. It seems like the BRI is a very effective uh, lever for China to use in cooperation with countries that want to sign up where they can offer, you know, reasonably priced or cheap resources like oil and gas as they have these relationships with Latin American and Saudis for the supp- on the supply side and safety in return for cooperation in the BRI and the BRI. And I think there's 60 countries now that have signed up. And uh, while the rest of the world's focused on all this other stuff, Chinese are very deterministic about continuing on. But let's talk about retaliation, deterrence, and attribution. Some folks want the US to retaliate for the solar winds attack. And we now hear uh, similar calls for a proportional response following the colonial pipeline attack as well. I know you have opinions about this, as you've described uh, cyber deterrence as not being primarily about weapons, and instead really it's about psychology. Can you share your view on what is a much more complex issue than that which might appear on the surface?
0: Yes. So, uh, as as you mentioned, when uh, the Solar Winds hack was exposed, and we should remember that it was a, an espionage uh, operation rather than a, a destruction operation. Uh, when when it was discovered, which was several months into it, it uh, taking place. Lots of talking heads would say, "Well, now the US has to hit back because this is unacceptable, and we need deterrence, and so now we should hit back against." russian um, uh, infrastructure for example in uh, uh, hit back in cyberspace against russian uh, infrastructure and that is just completely the wrong approach so deterrence is when when you convince somebody not to do something deterrence is not when you retaliate afterwards deterrence is when you signal to that other to your cu- counterpart, that if you do something, we will punish you. And clearly, this had not happened uh, to the desired extent, otherwise, solar winds would not have taken place. But if it then, uh, if a, a, an intrusion internet, a cyber intrusion takes place, it is totally counterproductive to then hit back with uh, a bit of Added force so to, to escalate because guess what? Then the other side will the side will hit back against you. And it's uh, it doesn't need anywhere. It, it, it in fact puts a very dangerous escalation in place that may spin out of control. Secondly, I think it's really important to remember that that solar winds really was an espionage operation. The Russian teams that were in there could have caused destruction if they wanted. They didn't. It was for espionage and Guess what? The US engages in cyber espionage as well, and so do many other countries. And if if the US hits back against Russia for solar winds, then Russia will, uh, when it next exposes Russia, uh, uh, when it next exposes US uh, cyber espionage, it will uh, publicize it and hit back as well. So it's just not a productive strategy. I think, and, and it's important to remember that maybe this time, the Russians went too far with a cyber espionage, and it's similar to what happened in, in the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher decided that the Soviets had too many spies in, in the UK. And she expo- she expelled a few, not because they had done anything wrong, simply because Russia had, uh, the Soviet Union at the time, had gone too far in spying, and, and uh, so... Uh, she thought she should bring it back to some sort of proportion. But it's not just uh, cyber attacks and cyber intrusion and cyber espionage that takes place in, in in the gray zone. There are lots of other activities as well. And I think it's really important for Western governments to signal that, that they can do two things. They can uh, create resilience among the wider population so that uh, the population doesn't panic in case of, of some sort of, of uh, calamity, which is what we saw with the pipeline situation, where it would have been fantastic to have societal resilience so that the, the damage, which would have contained the damage quite a bit. And then they also have to have the, the ability to punish, but that ability shouldn't just be signaled when something has happened and they then punish, it should be signaled long before to make the other side change its mind and decide it's not worth conducting these uh, aggressive operations, activities, because we will be punished. And so it really is about psychology. It's about convincing the other side that it's not worth their while, not worth their effort, not worth the expense. That's deterrence in action. And I hope we can get there because at the moment we, the West, are not signalling anything in response to activities, aggression uh, below the level of, uh, below the threshold of war, i.e. gray zone aggression. So it's essentially, uh, we leave it completely up to the other side, whether they want to, to engage in gray zone aggression or not.
1: Well, there's been a, some back and forth, right? I mean, we, in fact, uh, many of us believe that this attack was the direct result of the sanctions that the current administration imposed on Russia. In response to the solar winds attack, and then you know we've both done a nice job of you know throwing out our Russian and American diplomats from the countries, and I'm sure that you know the current administration is going to have some sort of plan to to uh, retaliate, if you will, or you know uh, have what you want to call it a proportional response, which I'm sure they will here in the future. So. There are a lot of components right now that look like they're, they're going to be tossed back and forth between the two countries, and that sort of escalation is a bad idea. We've seen a pretty hot self-help book market on personal fulfillment for like 25 years, I think now, which I guess is helpful to folks that are looking for better versions of themselves. But as you've pointed out, focusing on oneself means focusing less on others. And that has enormous implications for society and for national security. Can you help our listeners understand why all of this disinformation combines with this trend to create a uniquely dangerous environment?
0: Yes. So uh, many people might say, if if you say, well, narcissism is a threat to national security, they'll say, well, they have nothing to do with with each other. Uh, In fact, today, they are closely connected because if you look at the forms in which our adversaries today, mostly China and Russia, try to weaken us. Uh, one is through disinformation and misinformation, and the other, uh, well, uh, just one other, is through cyber aggression. Two recent examples that one of which we have just discussed, and the other one being the 6th of January assault on the Capitol. That assault. Took place because people, uh, the participants, decided to trust information that wasn't trustworthy. And why did they do that? Because they felt it, it, you know, that they had the right to use the information they wanted. And, and that's how we all operate when we consume information today. We don't think, well, you know, what is my role for society? Should I should I check this information first because I may uh, cause harm by by uh, spreading false information. No, we we just share it because we feel it's our right and and we interpret information um, at our advantage as well uh, because we care about ourselves. We don't first think of society. And why don't we first think of society? I think it's because societal engagement has decreased. So we are increasingly isolated from our fellow citizens. A generation, two generations ago, people participated in clubs and associations And they engaged in that context, they engaged with people who share their opinions and people who didn't share their opinions. But as Robert Putnam documented in in that famous book 20 years ago, "Bowling Alone, that societal engagement has been declining. And 20 years ago, it was just, okay. that's an interesting finding by Professor Putnam. Today, it is a national security risk, because if there is no cohesion in our societies, our adversaries can exploit that and the the lack of cohesion is uh, manifested through obsessive or or at least very heavy focus on ourselves and what we like and how we feel about things. And and the community is almost secondary. I know people will think I sound almost naive in highlighting the importance of the community. But if we don't become more cohesive as, as societies, our adversaries will keep exploiting those gaps. So coming back again to colonial pipeline when people heard about the ransomware situation, the fact that, that uh, the pipeline had been shut down, what did they do? They didn't first say, okay, what is the the, the most productive strategy here for wider society? Maybe we shouldn't all stockpile because then we will sure run out of gasoline. No, they all drove to the next gas station and, and filled up as much as they could in whatever container they could find, including plastic bags. And so they contributed to making the situation worse, as we have uh, discussed, and and that was based on narcissism. I come first, and my needs come first, and I don't care about the rest of society.
1: Well, that whatever that source of that misinformation is, uh, whether it's Russia, China, or both, uh, it's certainly been effective. We have the most divided society in the history in the history of the country, as far as my experience is concerned anyway, and it continues to head in, into a direction opposite of one that would be helpful. So it's very uh, worrisome, and we see more of it happening day in, day out. So my final question, Elizabeth, is uh, y- you argued that the West needs to take a lesson from China on backing its most strategic private companies, as China does with Huawei, for example. Of course, there's a huge difference between a constitutional federal republic like the United States and a one-party communist state. But still, I think that argument has merit, especially in light of what we just saw with colonial and solar winds. How would you see that uh, working?
0: Yeah, so uh, this again comes back to how the way in which Some countries, and one very major country in particular, namely China, abuses globalization, which is supposed to be a level playing field where companies um, compete against companies from all over the world and the the company with the best product at the best price wins. Well, what do you do when it's not a level playing field? So, for example, if we look at at the issue of the area of uh, mobile phone infrastructure, it just so happened that Sweden and Finland happened to have two very good companies, uh, Ericsson from Sweden, Nokia from Finland, and they kept competing against them. Huawei, and there were others at the early stages of, of uh, mobile phones and mobile phone infrastructure, they all fell by the wayside. Because they couldn't compete against Huawei and and, uh, ZTE, which is another Chinese company. They couldn't compete because those Chinese companies were unfairly supported by their home government. So it's, I think, almost a miracle that Ericsson and, and Nokia have survived because there has been very unfair competition, including IP theft. And I'm not saying that the Western companies should underwrite their national champions or key companies in particular sectors, but they should back them up when those companies are under some sort of threat or or aggression, because otherwise they are completely on their own against competitors that don't compete fairly and, in fact, uh, use very dirty tricks. And if we don't have these companies in our Western societies, we'll end up completely dependent on countries that don't play by the rules and whose companies are not... Competing on a level playing field, and that would be extremely dangerous. In in essence, uh, risking complete dependence on China in particular. So uh, I'm not saying we should underwrite the activities of of uh, the likes of Ericsson and Nokia, but we should back them up when they face uh, unfair competition and unfair aggression. And we should remember that at the moment, the Chinese government is trying is is coercing Ericsson into lobbying for Huawei in its home country of Sweden, simply because it's easy to work as a company. A company can't protect itself and it needs, in this case Ericsson, needs the Chinese market. So what can it do? It has to lobby for, for its main competitor in its home market. It's a bunker situation. And that's why we need governments to, to not just sit back and say, well, it's a free market, we, we just set the rules. No. If countries systematically, if other countries systematically abuse those rules or disregard them, then it's your responsibility as a government to back uh, your your home companies up.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a problem with uh, this kind of a tricky problem with not, not a great solution, because when the federal government gets involved here, it's very different than the Chinese, the PRC ministers uh, over there. We have so many agencies involved and everybody needs to you know, piece of the pie and all the rest of it. It yeah. takes forever,
0: <laughs> yes. and then you- yes, I'm I'm not saying it's easy, but it could be as 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 minimal as just making the case publicly and saying, if this continues, we will support such and such company, whichever company it is that is being unfairly uh, attacked. We will back them up. But at the moment, we are not, our governments are not even saying that. And yes, I I uh, I think it's it's it's. Obvious that, that the U.S. economy functions differently from from the Chinese one, but even just public statements, I think, would would be a good start, and and not the sort of statements that Trump Donald Trump put out that, that were more uh, of, a, of a of a an aggressive and hostile nature. We we, we don't want to provoke uh, more adversity between uh, China and the West, but we do want to protect our companies because they play by the rules and they need to to at least feel that somebody is is keeping an eye on on the situation and is willing to, as I said, support them, even if it's just with words, if they should be targeted, which, by the way, happens very frequently.
1: (laughs) Amen. We're out of time today, Elizabeth, but this has been a uh, very entertaining uh, exchange, and I think we scratched the surface of a bunch of important issues. So I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join me today, and I look forward to bringing you back in a few months as we see how the next series of waves uh, work out here.
0: It was a pleasure, and yes, who knows what we'll see in the next few months, so I look forward to coming back and uh, chatting again then.
1: Terrific. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another episode of Cyber Theories, Exploration into the Complex World of Cybersecurity. Technology and digital realities. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at
1: cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io
0: forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.